Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnic wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnic wear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnic wear on Instagram at Picnic wear, and that's wear, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No flight back vintage, bringing fun new life to old things always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at NoFlightBackVintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at ShiftWheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle.
Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of June, St. Evans is supporting Last Prisoner Project, which works to redress the harms of cannabis criminalization through legal intervention, education, and criminal justice reform advocacy. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearsaintevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom-and-pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul, and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? 
Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that has eaten way too many weird salads in my lifetime. I probably ate a weird salad today. <laughs> I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 81. And I'm so excited for you to meet today's super special guest, my friend, Jess. My original plan for this interview was that I would split it into two episodes, as I often do, but I just couldn't do it. It made way too much sense as a single episode. And I found myself just smiling and laughing the entire time I edited this conversation because I just love Jess so much. And you're going to feel the same way by the time you finish this episode. I promise. My conversation with Jess is a perfect pairing of labor month and personal style month, which, you know, we're observing over at closehorse.world. So I knew I had to get her on the podcast. But in order to know why I thought that, you'll have to listen to the episode. No spoilers here. You can wait 20 more seconds, right? I'm also just going to call out that we do talk about anti-fat bias and how it affects the fashion industry in the second half of the episode. So if that's something that's bad for your mental health, that ruins your day, you might want to skip that section. And that section starts after the blog promo. This is a long conversation, so I just want to jump right into it. With no further ado, let's meet Jess. Today I'm excited to be joined by, gosh, Jess, you've been, I've known you for so long. I know. I know. How long? 10 years? No, more than that. Well, more than years? that. Yeah, at least. Oh my God. Wow. I'm going to let Jess introduce herself, but I met Jess pretty early in my career in buying because she was working for a vendor um, that made shoes. And I was like, wow, the vendor is really annoying. But every time I'm in a meeting with them, I just want to talk to Jess. So I was like, hey, do you want to like take this to the next level? Like right, outside right. of work? <laughs> do you want to follow me on MySpace? Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, maybe write on each other's walls. Were they called walls then? Right. I don't know. And then maybe if we do that a couple times, then we can hang out in real life, which we did. Yes. So Jess, why don't you tell everyone who you are? Um, I am Jess. Um, I am a, well, right now I am a mom and <laughs> which is a job <laughs> and a content creator. Um, and I'm just kind of like, uh, trying to survive in this, um, plus size fashion space. Um, and I don't know, that's, that's pretty much what I'm doing right now. So I had been wanting to talk to you about coming on the pod anyway, to talk about being an influencer and the plus size style space, which is the whole conversation in itself. But then I realized that you've had, I, I don't know, anywhere from nine to 1,000 different jobs. <laughs> 
I know. <laughs> when you when you said this morning, you were like, I'm going to ask you how many jobs you had. And I started <laughs> like trying to do the mental gymnastics of trying to answer that. And I just gave up because it's, just, <laughs> it's like so insane. It's absurd and kind of embarrassing. Like I don't talk about it a lot because it really makes me sound like I have like commitment issues, which I don't. <laughs> I mean, no way. I think it makes it sound like you're a person who, like me, has a lot of curiosity about trying new things. Yes. And that's why I'm excited to talk to you. I was like, okay, well, we have to do this at the end of Labor Month. So it's like a nice crossover between Labor Month and Personal Style Month because you have tried so many different things. And I think most of us feel like we're locked into something for so long just because we've done it for a while or that's what we went to school for, that's what our parents want us to do, that's what our friends do, whatever. You know, our job is so entangled in our personal identity for better or worse. So yes. I think that says a lot about how complicated of a person you are that you've tried all these different things. So I'm excited to talk to you about it because you have, you have stories, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think that like you kind of hit the nail on the head on why I have a hard time kind of talking about it because I come from like a family where both of my parents had the same job their whole lives. Like they never, my mom has had the same job for almost 40 years, you know? I think the longest I spent in a, in a job was maybe three years yeah, maybe like three years. And that was like when I was doing other jobs on top of it. Like I have a lot of overlap. <laughs> <laughs> I always say there's just like not enough time for me to experience like th there's not enough life for me. I like need like a couple more so I can try all the things. <laughs> I think you touched on something that's really important there is that especially for our parents' generation, there's this idea that you pick a lane and you stay in it forever, even if you hate it. Yes, right? absolutely. I know my yeah. mom always hated her job when I was growing up. She was an accountant. She hated it. But she was like, this is what I went to school for. So this is what I'm supposed to do. I like to think that our generation is starting to say like, yeah, fuck that. Do different stuff. You know, you shouldn't do the same thing forever unless you love it. In that case, please have at it. But I had an interview a while back in the early part of the pandemic where it was a totally a different industry. It wasn't fashion. It was a, a restaurant supply company. And mm -hmm. the person interviewed me was like, wow, you kind of seem like you're a job hopper. And I'm like, really? Because I've only worked for four or five companies in my whole career. Mm -hmm. And she was like, yeah, but I mean, why would you move around like that? And I was like, well, that's how the industry works. You know, like you yeah. can't in, – in fashion at least, if you stay at the same – with the same company forever, you're going to make less money and you're going to get promoted less often. That's the reality of it, That's right? That's absolutely the reality. And I think in a lot of creative fields too. Yeah. You, know, you you're have constantly to looking for the next, yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's like an old timey attitude. So yeah. let's go back to the beginning. When you okay. were a kid, when you were in high school, I don't know, middle school, whenever, what did you think your job was going to be when you were an adult? When I was in high school, I distinctly remember wanting to be a sculptor. <laughs> okay, we already are off the great start here. I know. I was like, uh, you know, a, a kid that struggled like so many of us did with identity, with like figuring out where I belonged. And I was an art major in high school, which meant that like half of my day could be art classes. And um, I just loved working with my hands. Like I loved making things with my hands. And I thought, you know, I want to do this. This is something that I, you know, I think I can contribute. Um, but then I decided to go into fashion and 
I was just thinking about this recently. Like my foray into fashion is kind of like accidental. I wanted to make myself more marketable. (laughs) I laugh so hard at that when I think about it. So like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go into fashion. Uh, I mean, so I mean, it it makes sense, right? Yeah. Yeah. I decided to apply um, to to college for, uh, I went in um, for art schools, but also applied to fashion schools, specifically to the Fashion Institute, Institute, because they had an accessories design program. And I thought, you know, aren't accessories just sculptures? Like, isn't it three-dimensional art? I know. Silly, I mean, yes, <laughs> in its purest form. I mean, I think this is interesting already, because this is pointing out something that I think is in the back of my mind a lot, too, that if you're creative... And, like, you know that you are somehow supposed to make a living off of that creativity that a lot of people do get pushed into fashion because that is a commodification of creativity. Whereas, like, if you had just said, no, I'm going to school for sculpture, your parents would have been like, um, well, so, like, you're going to get a job at Starbucks when you're done or, you know. What are you going to do with it? You know, and I say that out of fear. Like, I get that. Um. But I think also, you know, I always say I got into fashion accidentally, and that's just one place where I got into fashion accidentally. (laughs) I was a plus-size person even at my thinnest. Um, And I remember, like, not being able to find clothes. And I found Jenko's, right? Yeah. (laughs) Jenko's. And I was, like, suddenly, like, oh, I'm in the raver culture. (laughs) And because I found pants that fit me, like, like, what? And so, like, then I was like, oh, I have these pants that fit me. So now I am, I identify something because of my fashion. So now all of a sudden I had a stake in fashion and I never really had before. And I think a lot of, and, you know, we could talk about that later, but I think a lot of plus size people um, feel that way. You don't have a stake in fashion. So I had a stake in fashion. I was, wanted to be a sculpture. I wanted to make myself more marketable. Hence, I go into footwear design, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I have to say like that, like I was right that I could go to school for uh, accessories design and it would be like sculpture. But then once you're out of fashion school and you're not actually making everything by hand, like it's a very different career than what you envisioned for yourself because you're sitting at a computer all day talking to, you know, talking to buyers, talking to manufacturers, and it's not a, as creative of a, of a career as you thought it would be, you know? All that yeah. stuff happens overseas, at least for us, in, a, in some kind of, you know, manu- manufacturing facility. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's true. So, it's more meetings and emails than anything else. Exactly. Oh, yeah. I always said, like, you tell people, like, oh, because I was a footwear designer, and, I'm, and, you know, I would tell people that, and they'd envision, like, some – somebody in a movie that's very glamorous and she, and, you know, and they're footwear designer. I'm like, yeah, I guess, but that's like maybe 5% of the job is that fun creative part where you're shopping the market and you're trend forecasting and, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's mostly like, uh, bad lunches and like weird, a lot of weird salads. I feel like, um, <laughs> a lot of weird, a lot of weird salads. Wow. Why do we eat so many weird salads? Somebody should do a, a case study on this. It's so true. <laughs> <laughs> and like walking around like really sad like industrial yeah, parks. I don't know. Yeah. Just- <laughs> and just 
on your lunch break. And just being like tired, you know. Just being tired under fluorescent lights. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. Anyway. Um, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's very different from what, you know, what you envision. But I do have to say, I met some of the coolest people ever. You are one of them Aww. just by being in this, you know, being in this industry. So there's that. But I'm definitely an expatriate, you know, as far as the fashion <laughs> fashion industry goes. I guess it's true that in my in my career, I have met some of the raddest, smartest, interesting people ever, and yeah. I've also met some of the just most terrible people ever. So I, I agree with that. I agree with that. <laughs> it's uh, absolutely. But I, I, you know, I think that that's important to call out is that, like, yeah, I worked with a lot of really horrible people. I worked for a lot of really horrible people, but I also worked with lots of really rad people that kept me coming to work and staying engaged, and I'm still friends with them for sure. And so many of the people that I met at the place where we worked together, eventually, because eventually <laughs> we worked together. Yeah, I'm still in touch with some of these people, and some of them are doing really effing cool things now. You know, so. Agreed. Like, there's there's hope for us yet. <laughs> agreed. Agreed. There really is. So okay. So we. I'm I'm skipping my question where I ask you how many jobs I think you've had because okay. we don't know. Maybe I'm gonna say I can't count it on two hands. <laughs> okay. So let's just leave it at that. That sounds right to me. Okay. So mm-hmm. how about this? What was your favorite job? My favorite job was hands down. When I was a teacher in the Philly uh, school district. My gosh, I remember that. And wait a minute. Wasn't that at the same time they were filming some sort of like Tony Danza yes. reality show? Oh my gosh. What was it called? Oh, I can't believe you remember that. But you have such a good memory. I mean, it could um, it, it was it, Tony Danza. I'm Googling it right now. And it was called, it was called Schooled? Teach. No. Teach. That's what it was called. That could have been better. And he actually taught in the same district that I did. I taught in the Upper Northeast. Um, you know, still considered Philly, but almost, almost, you know, almost not. It was right on the border. And he taught at a school right near mine. And I had to go through all these training programs where, he, in the summer, where he was there. <laughs> and he'd always have his people with him. And I have to say, like, I only watched a couple episodes, but I think he did a pretty good job. Teaching is really hard. Yeah, it seems like so. I just did some speed reading about it. He did not have teaching certification when he began. And so in the beginning, he had to have a co-teacher there. But it says that he got his teaching accreditation and taught the second semester without the co-teacher. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I do have to say, too, he he went through everything you were supposed to do. The Philly School District had all of these like courses you had to take, all of these certifications you had to take. I, I, you know, which I I agree with. I think you should have them. And he did not like he went and did them all. So that's pretty cool. Like yeah. I thought that was pretty cool. And like we would be sitting in some like hot cafeteria in the summer, sweating and like eating like these weird sandwiches that they gave <laughs> us. <laughs> there was Tony Danza like right there with us, like no problem. I love pretty that. Cool. I think yeah, it was pretty cool. cool. Yeah. Like, I, you know, I've never been a Tony Danza fan. I'm not like whatever. I'm not like, yay, Tony Danza now. But like, I was just like, <laughs> you know, that was like my closest, you know, one of my closest interactions with a celebrity. And I'm happy with it. I think that's a good one. I'll allow it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I just want to make it clear for anyone listening that I also am not like a Tony Danza <laughs> fan per se. I'm not. Per se. A Tony Danza anti fan either. I'm kind, I kind of nothing him, right? Yeah, you kind I'm, of nothing him. Yeah, like he's fine. He's I, fine. He, you know, I don't think about him a lot. <laughs> this is the first time I've talked about him 
probably since you took the teaching job, Jess. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad we could bring him back for a minute. Yeah, (laughs) have that moment. Uh, Why was teaching your favorite job? So it's funny. I I decided to go into teaching because I was kind of like floundering around at the time. And I, Mm -hmm. um, I was about to get married. I knew I wanted to have kids and I was trying to like make myself like feel more secure. Um, in my career. So I was like teaching, um, you know, my sister's a teacher. I liked her schedule. I thought it seemed like a good thing for me. I would always go in for career day and talk at her school. And I (laughs) I just like loved it. I thought, you know, that's like the irony of that is really funny. But um, so I was actually hired. I was a Philly teaching fellow. So that's where you can go into teaching and they'll you know, put you through the schooling that you need to become a teacher in the classroom. And um, it's usually at high risk schools, or that's what it was called at the time, high risk, um, where they're having, where they were having a hard time hiring people. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was actually, um, they usually place you at schools, but I was actually selected by the principal at the school where I worked because it was a big sports school. So kids would come in, um, come to go to that school because there were a lot of professional athletes that came out of it, specifically like their football and their basketball programs. And they Mm. felt like those programs were more geared toward, uh, like male students. Mm -hmm. So she thought, I want to start a fashion kind of program here. And um, so she saw that on my resume and because she thought it would be something, you know, eye roll that the girls (laughs) could be a part of. Right, right. (laughs) You know, that's problematic. (laughs) I know how problematic that is. But anyway, that's what she told me. And I was like, yes, I will do it. (laughs) And, um, but the only way that I could do it was if I, um, also could teach a core subject Okay, and I always loved science. So whenever I had, um, like an elective to take in college, it was usually a science class and unbeknownst to me, I had built up like so many science credits that like automatically I could be certified as a science teacher. Wow. No, I like, I didn't even realize at the time. And she's like, I looked at, cause I guess she had my, you know, all my college courses or whatever. And, um, she's like, I looked at it and I think that you'd be really great if you went and you taught science, which I was like, yes. Um, so I taught half the day fashion design and half the day biology, um, physics and, um, was, oh, environmental science. This sounds so yeah. fun to me. It was it was very fun. It was hard because I had a lot of different, um, you know, I had a lot of different classes to teach throughout the day. So like preparing for those classes was really hard. I didn't have any resources at all. Like I, not a single sewing machine. Like try to teach kids how to, you know, do fashion design and and you don't have a sewing machine. It was very hard. Um, but it was also the same year that I got married. I, so I started teaching in September and I got married in October. I went away on my honeymoon, which, um, you know, you don't usually do, you don't usually go away in October as a teacher, but it was like one of those things they were like, we want you, we'll figure it out. It'll be fine. And I come back and as like a, as like a honeymoon gift to me, they had sent set up my whole classroom with like all the teachers had donated fabrics and like sewing machines and like needle, like, you know, thread and needles and like all this stuff. And I was like all set, but it took the the teachers doing that. Like it wasn't, I had no funding whatsoever (laughs) to do this. So our first uh, fashion show, we made everything out of, um, 
like recycled materials so the wow. kids would bring in. I wish I have pictures of it somewhere because the stuff that they came up with was amazing. And I would teach them real fabric techniques, but we would just use it with, um, you know, newspapers and, and magazines and tissue paper and, you know, other things like that. It was, it was unbelievably cool. That sounds amazing. It was amazing. It was a very project um, runway moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. You know? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it, like they had this chance to be really creative and, you know, it was awesome. It was awesome to be a part of that. And so why did you stop doing that? I stopped doing that because I was cut. My job was cut. Um, I don't know if you remember, but um, it was probably 2008. Yeah, somewhere around there. No, 2009 or 10. Um, Philly cut 4,000 of its teachers' jobs. Yeah. Oh, my God. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, and um, because of my seniority, I was my job was cut. Um, and I thought that I was just, like, laid off and that's it. And I was uh, what they called forced transferred. So teachers that had more seniority – you know, once more spaces open back up, could choose to go to the school they wanted to. And mm. so somebody else took my space at the, te- the place I was teaching, which was so sad to me. Like, I loved that school. And I was forced transferred to Bach School in South Philly, oh. which I don't know if you know about Bach School, but it closed the year yeah. after I took there. <laughs> I'm like, I feel like I'm like, I come in like a wrecking ball. Like, I I just feel like, (laughs) don't hire me. Like, guys, like, don't hire me. If you want your business to stay open. Yeah. Um, But anyway, um, yeah, so now Bach is a maker space and there's a bar there and there's, um, you're like, I think there's a restaurant. I've actually never been there. But when they were, um, you know, showing all the classrooms, when they were um, re- like redoing the place for the maker space, my classroom that I had taught in was there. And it was like the, the bulletin board um, fabric I'd put up on my bulletin boards was still there. It was very creepy. Wow. Very, very creepy. Weird. Yeah, because that same year, like tons of Philly schools were completely abandoned. I'm not even sure what the state of them are now, you know, are yeah. now just like that one, but the, the box school I know has, you know, thrived. I'm not sure if people in the neighborhood would say that because they were very much against it. But yeah, well, I wonder when your kids go to school now. Yeah, the kids, well, Philly is like a a choice district. So Mm. kids could go anywhere in the whole city. It's just if that's your neighborhood school, you have to go somewhere further away. Yeah. Which I think it would be South Philly High, which is, you know, Bach was a, you had, it was a technical school. You Mm -hmm. had to get into it. So I'm sure it was a nightmare for a lot of people. That was the same year I had my first child too. So yeah, I know. So I, um, you know, I kind of like welcomed (laughs) leaving, leaving there because, um, I wasn't teaching fashion design there. I was just teaching um, science. Mm-hmm. I talked to them about what I did at my former school and nobody wanted to hear it. It was just, you know. Yeah. Um, and there were fights all the time. And the and the um, security guards were like these little old ladies. And I just didn't feel – I know. And like my former school, the security guards were like this, you know, this force and they – they de-escalated with these kids and it was really like they were well known for like doing a really good job um so I was like now that somebody's relying on me and I have this baby I can't I can't go back to this yeah that makes sense to me 
Yeah. So that was kind of, that was it for me. I mean, I have thought about going back to teaching no less than 3 million times since, <laughs> but it's a really hard time to be a teacher. Yeah. This is <laughs> not really the time. Is. Yeah. This is not the time, not even the pandemic. I just, I just mean like what we expect from teachers is just so absurd considering, <sighs> also considering what they're paid and exactly. it's just, it's, it's insane. So I don't know. I don't know what, what lies next for me. We'll see. <laughs> Well, so what was your worst job? My worst job was, I'm sure there are a couple. Okay. I'm thinking of the job that I worked with with you. <laughs> I kind of had a feeling. So we're not, we're not going to name No, of, company, of course not. Of course not. <laughs> we both worked. Well, I, well, I was working there when I met Jess for a very large fast fashion company. And I was working mm-hmm. and buying. And you were you were working in you joined the company later was it site merchandising is that what it was yes it was online merchandising and what's interesting about that time specifically Jess, is i remember like within a year of before you had started our website was so shitty that it would frequently just go down for a weekend and we would miss (laughs) like major sales and we were a massive corporation with hundreds of stores. I can't tell you how many times I've talked about this very thing with people. <laughs> because I think if you live in the area that we're we're in, I don't want to give it away, but like <laughs> you kind of like like my goal was to work there. Yeah. Like I wanted to work there. I thought it sounded beautiful and like dreamy and I'd wake up every day and just like love going to work. But I show up on the first day and they give me the, first of all, I had no merchandising experience whatsoever. I had a lot of different fashion Mm -hmm. experience. I worked in fashion PR before that. I worked in design before that um, and even manufacturing. But I, I go in having done no merchandising whatsoever and they give me the largest (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> collection, which was women's wear. Oh my God. Like, Here you go. And they were like, but you have to do intake, which means like we have to account for like what came in. So we know what is available to upload it to say like, we have this many of this, this item. This is for crazy. People who are, and, it was, and the, and the program was in DOS. <laughs> So, so it was like tab, 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 F1, F2, tab, tab, you know? And this was like, like DOS had been gone for like a decade at this point. And I'm like, what? This is a very large organization and we're still working in DOS? Yeah. And it was was just totally insane. I was just very surprised. And that was like red flag number one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I assume by now their website has changed considerably. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. When I initially joined the buying team, we had a separate buying team for online because that was just like at that point, it was like, yeah, it seems like people want to buy stuff on the internet, but like not a lot of people want to buy stuff on the internet. Now, of course, it's totally the opposite, right? Like, right, right. I didn't maybe, even think about that. Yeah, maybe people want to shop in stores now, but mostly they want to shop on the internet. And mm-hmm. so at one point, and I want to say it was before you joined the team, they were like, okay, this is not working, having separate buying teams for the two different places you can shop. And also, they probably wanted to save money, let's be real. So yeah. they got, not got rid of the online buying team, but they folded them into other parts of the company and then had us buy both stuff for stores and online. And I remember 
being trained on the programs that all of you were using for the website and being like, Mm -hmm. wait, what? Why why is this so terrible? Like <laughs> it was terrible. And nobody nobody trained up, like nobody really trained me and I was very lucky because the group that I was working with were I mean I didn't get along great with the manager, but the other people that worked in my department on the other collections, like the accessories or the menswear or the housewares, um, were so great. And they just kind of like, come here, like, let me show you how to do it kind of thing. And that's how I learned, which is <laughs> mm-hmm. like, and I remember I, I, I would go in at like 7 a.m. Sometimes I couldn't even get in. There was nobody there yet because mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure I did that like whole intake, whatever, and get it over with so I could actually do do my job. So that was very hard. Yeah. (laughs) But also the whole, like, like you had mentioned, like the whole program would crash and constantly do anything. Constantly. It would. And so like, like, do you remember, like we could just like ride around on uh, like the campus. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so we would just like ride around and like, it was awesome. Like that part of it was awesome. I mean, great friends doing that and it was fun that was fun (laughs) yeah yeah um but the actual job itself was really hard and then you know buyers would always fight for you know top billing and I didn't really understand what was going on I was like why are you why are you mad at me why are you fighting like why why is this happening (laughs) it Uh was like a lot of lack of communication and a lot of ego um which I think you know happens a lot and you know, huge companies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it was very, it was and is very competitive there where it's not yes. like, like how it felt different for me. You know, my previous jobs for the most part had been either in like the nonprofit space or working retail where it's kind of like, we're all in this together. You know, it's right. us against the world, right? Mm-hmm. And then I went there and it was like, oh no, it's all of us against one another. It's like Hunger yes. Games every day. It really here. was like Hunger Games. Yeah. It really was. And so like you're competing with every single person around you. So there's not a sense of like team at all, just like frenemies kind of. You and I had something in common about our beginnings at that company, which is that our bosses never spoke to us, uh, (laughs) which I think is a really interesting uh, management technique. And really, I haven't experienced since then, but was very, very stressful, I guess, for me when I began where I would sit, I don't know, I would say I sat about 10 feet away from my manager and she never spoke to me. She just emailed me. And so (laughs) I would go a whole day without speaking to another human sometimes. My manager there worked directly behind me. So <laughs> I can like, there it. were points in the day where we were um, less than 48 inches away from each other. <laughs> and she would she would put hit me up on the on the messenger thing that like the same time or whatever it was <laughs> that we had. But it wasn't just like like I can understand that if you're like you're telling somebody something technical and you want them to have it in writing so they understand, but it was just like a couple of times like I remember when I gave my notice and like like despite everything she really liked me like I think she saw me kind of as a friend what? and I know I know I know and um I think outside of there she probably was a great person it was just like her management style didn't work for me um but she'd be like I remember her writing to me being like I'm really sad you're leaving <laughs> Just turn around and tell me I'm right here. I know. I like, oh, like uh, talking. You like talking. Like, it's just like, just talk to me. Like, really? What are you doing? What are you doing over there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
to be fair, that company did did not and still continues to not have an HR department. So there isn't a lot of training and mentoring in the first place. So Mm -hmm. if you're a manager there, you've never had the opportunity to learn how to be a good one. Yes. And so you might think that it's Agreed. okay to just chat your direct report all day. Right. And she was also, she was younger than me. It was her first job out of college. Like it was, oh, you know, it was mess. tricky. But I think you're right though. Like the culture of the company is everything. And the, you know, from the, from the outside looking at that company, it seems like this really great cu- culture, like of all these very creative people. And it's a beautiful atmosphere there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and then you get in there and you're like, oh my gosh, I fell for it. Yeah. <laughs> I fell for the, the marketing. <laughs> yes. Yes. Not only did I leave that company finally, I went back. Um, and yeah. I, yeah was like, why did I do this? I know what this place is. You know, you can, when you've been there, you can walk into an environment like that and feel it right away. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, nothing has changed. Wow. I'm so stupid. No. Anyway. Well, I think like you want to, you, like you want to think the best and you want to yeah. think like the people there have changed because the, the turnover there is insane. Oh, oh, oh yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, it it's is. just really insane, which is like, a, that's a whole other topic. Like, oh the yeah. Idea. There you go. There's, I mean, a, there's I think, a new topic for you. <laughs> I think that turnover is really interesting because I've worked mm-hmm. some places. Like when I worked at Nasty Gal, it was such a horrible place to work. Even though lots of awesome people worked there, like all the people who actually did the work were super rad, but everybody mm-hmm. who was like in a leadership role was horrible. And yeah. so it was a really toxic environment because of that. And so every week, every, I swear to God, every Friday there'd be two going away parties. Somewhat like there was so much oh champagne God. and cupcakes and strawberries <laughs> around that office on that Fridays. So like that is comedy gold. It is. Right it's, there. it's like I was talking to another friend and they were like, I don't even like cupcakes anymore because I had so many <laughs> from all, cupcakes for me. <laughs> from all the people leaving. And like, you know, so yes. the turnover there was because it was a terrible place to work. Um mm-hmm. the turnover at the company that we're talking about is twofold because one, it's a pretty terrible place to work that doesn't pay well and treats you like crap. But also, if you stick around long enough, they're going to push you out anyway. Like, they want the turnover. And whereas at, like, Nasty Gal, no one was ever there long enough to get Mm -hmm. forced out. Yeah. (laughs) Why do you think – that's interesting. Why do you think they want the turnover? I never even considered that. Um, I think part of it is financial, right? It's uh, cheaper to pay people with less experience, right? Oh, right, right. I'm thinking it's expensive to retrain somebody and to do all that, but they don't do that. Exactly. It's just another body. Wow. And I think also the other thing when we're talking about like more youth-oriented brands, if you will, Mm -hmm. uh, is that there's this concern. I mean, it's ageism, right? Right. It's absolutely ageism. um, You're like 35 now, so you probably aren't (laughs) cool anymore. (laughs) You know? My God. Yeah. Yeah. And nothing ever changes when you do that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, and nothing ever gets better because, you know, I mean, it's not, you know, I'm not trying to defend all us old folks over here, but like <laughs> back we, in my day, <laughs> back, but we, yeah, but we've seen why certain things are a bad strategy, why they don't work out. Right. And it has nothing to do with like trends or age or anything like that. But if you've yeah. never, if you're at the beginning of your career, you have less experience, you don't know why it's a bad idea to do X, Y, Z because you haven't seen it play out. Absolutely. But also you're like, I'm just going to give it a try and maybe I can change it. Yeah. Maybe I can make people happy because I'm a very happy person. (laughs) 
<laughs> maybe I can change the entire culture of the entire company. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I always have had that attitude like, well, it's just like what you make of it. And then uh-huh. like in retrospect, I'm like, yeah, yeah that's no. putting way too much responsibility on myself for something I can't fix. It absolutely, yes, absolutely. Um, which is yeah. good advice to anyone listening that if you have a job – and it's a sucky, toxic environment, it's not your fault. No. Move on. No, absolutely. Oh, yeah. you're, you're so right. And I wish somebody had, had told me that. Me too. It would have saved me a lot of heartache. Even when, no. honestly, when I was interviewing for Nasty Gal, you know, there have been a, several exposés at this point about how it was a toxic environment and the glass door reviews were a nightmare. Mm-hmm. And I said to myself, yeah, but I'm different. This mm-hmm. will be different for me. And then I got there and I was like, oh my God, I'm eating my lunch in the bathroom because everyone's so mean. <laughs> oh my God. You know? No. <laughs> I know. Oh, that's terrible. Um, so I that's like just life advice from us for free. Mm-hmm. Um just there quit. It is. do something else. You're not gonna yeah. change it. No. So did you ever feel like in any of your jobs, did you feel kind of disposable and easily replaceable? Because, I mean, this is something we talk about a lot when I talk to other people who've worked in the fashion industry specifically, that you always feel like if you don't like it, it's your problem and you'll be replaced in five seconds. So like, who cares? Like you have someone's dream job, so better just suck it up and learn to like it. But I hear this from other people as well, like in other industries who are like, I feel like I, no one cares if I'm replaced by someone else tomorrow. It's that easy. I have no leverage here because someone else will step right in. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like <clears throat> the the significant amount of like job hopping, we'll call it, that I did um, also never – like I never got to the next level because I was never there long enough. So I was always at that disposable level. And I think that's a part of it too, you know. And um, I, I changed course – Many times because of layoffs, it had sometimes it sometimes had nothing to do with my own decision making. Oh yeah, same for me. And so because of that, like <laughs> yeah, like like I talked about when I was a teacher and how there were teacher layoffs, and I hadn't been there long enough. Forget that, like my test scores were great and my kids were doing, you know, my students were doing great. Like forget it, it doesn't matter. You haven't been here long enough, so you you get the the old boot, Ugh. you know. Um, so I was always at that, and I think like as a creative mm-hmm. too. You know, it's like, oh, when I was, uh, when I was a footwear designer, I was the, I, I was the creative department, like almost single-handedly. And it's like, okay, well, we'll just keep all of the business people. And this was during two, 2000, um, 2008 mm-hmm. economic yep. collapse. Uh, you're the first to go, but we'll bring you back as soon as we can, you know. But for half the money. That's something I've been <sighs> right. seeing right now. I belong to a lot of different orga- like groups that are you know organizing around unemployment and issues with jobs right now. And yeah, th- a recurring story as people who were laid off due to the pandemic, their bosses, their employers coming back to them and saying, hey, listen, you can come back, but you're going to take a 30% pay cut. And wow. it's like, wait, what? <laughs> That's like, yeah, opportunistic. I know. Them. Would you take that offer if if you could get your last? Would job I? Next? Yeah, I don't think so. But that's my privilege. Right, I don't right. have to. Right. You know. Yeah. And but if I had to, absolutely, I probably yeah, would. Exactly. I mean, like we're still riding on this unemployment 
you know, train, but it's going to, it's going to end. Like I'm, I'm just like, I've been thinking about September when like unemployment benefits are going to drop off, like, and it's going to be Lord of the Flies. Hot take. No, I'm, Um, I'm really frightened about it because there just aren't enough jobs out there right now. I'm very frightened about it. And I feel like the numbers they're showing the jobs and like all this talk of like, but nobody wants to work. We're having a hard time. Nobody wants to work. Well, it's going to change pretty fast. So yeah, yeah. No, there, I don't know. There are like for all of this, like no one will come in our work in my restaurant or my McDonald's talk that yes. I see. The reality yeah. is that there just aren't enough jobs out there anyway. And I also, you know, I know that we are not supposed to expect that the world is fair or just, and we are supposed right. to just take what we're given. But mm-hmm. it seems incredibly unfair and unrealistic to expect someone who maybe was making. before $100,000 a year, whatever, to now go work at Taco Bell. Yeah. I don't think that's fair. And I don't think that's okay. And I don't think that's a reason to cut off unemployment benefits. Of course not. I mean, I was also, I'm also lucky because I, when I was working before the pandemic, I worked for a great company who really valued us. And I don't think that they would do that. I mean, things have changed for them. They're not really in a position to hire everybody back right now. They're trying. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are a business that decided when we open, we want to pay, we want to pay our employees fairly. So we can't bring back people unless we can pay them fairly. So they're just not open as much. Mm-hmm. They're only open two days a week versus seven days a week. And I think that's or, okay. I'm sorry, six days a week. That's okay. I think it's okay. Yeah. And they're just making it work. And I respect that. But then there's all these like, we want people to come and work and they're not working, but we only pay $325 an hour. And then they make a lot, they can make a lot of them tips, you know? Maybe. It's just like, maybe, right? Yeah. It's like, you can't, it's just like, I feel like I would always be be chased if I had a job like that. Oh, uh, I would be so To make ends out. meet. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. just so stressful. So. So anyway, in what job did you feel the most appreciated? Like you were valuable and everybody would do anything they could to make sure you were having a good experience there. I think that was um, when I was teaching at my first school because I had a really great supervisor and I had a team that I worked with, like all these other teachers. The the first year that I worked there, they put us into these groups so that we could have, um, you know, kind of like brainstorming sessions. And we all had... um, you know, similar students. So we could talk about those students and how we could serve them the best. I thought that, I thought that was great. Um, but then after I left education and had my first child, I started my own company and, um, I did like kids cooking classes and I did, um, I ran, um, summer camps for kids. I did like a a farm, farm to fork for kids, Mm -hmm. um, where we went to a farm and they would go and they would pick all the ingredients and we'd make, um, recipes and stuff. And I hired, it was during the summer and I hired all teachers to be my counselors with me. And I mean, and that was just like an unbelievable, unbelievable experience. <laughs> so both of those jobs, but I think the the farm to fork and all the cooking classes and all, I had control over it. So that's probably why I liked it. <laughs> and it was something that my community really like embraced. And, um, you know, it, it just was, you know, I got a lot of support and, you know, so that makes a difference. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like a perfect job for you, actually. <laughs> it was great. Yeah, it was really great. Um, then I had my second child. I did it until I had my second child. And then it was just like, it was too much. Yeah. It, was, it was really hard work. And when I broke down what I made 
versus the amount of time that I was spending on it and the amount of time I had to like kind of take away from my kids because I had to plan for it and like, you know, drag everything out into a field so that kids could make salsa out of you know, <laughs> stuff they picked. It was just like, I can't, I can't do it. It, it doesn't make sense right. for me right. anymore. So I do miss it. Every summer comes along and I'm like, uh, another summer without time at the farm oh, you yeah. know we would, it was like uh you know it started at age four it was like age four to four 13 and I really started that program for my daughter who loved um going whenever we would go to farms and they would take care of the animals and it was magical they would pick a bouquet of flowers every week and we'd make a bouquet to bring home and uh it was wonderful it really was yeah, that was my dream that incredible <laughs> yeah yeah um, do you think you might want to do that again? I don't know. Um, the other thing that happened, I I got in. I had this idea. A friend of mine were friend of mine and I were talking one day about summer camps. My daughter was three at the time, my first daughter, and I was like, I really wish that they had this. And she's like, Why don't you do it then? <laughs> I was like, Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I guess I will. And I just heard about the CSA farm that had opened and it was completely organic, although they didn't have the certification yet because there's this like in New Jersey, there's this like three year thing that you have to go through, but they were growing everything organically. The farm had been um, abandoned for like 10 years. They redid the whole, like, you know, they brought it back to its original grandeur. Um, This family, they lived there. They were farming the land. It was beautiful. And they were like, of course we want you to have your camp here. It's awesome. Like, please have it here. And uh, we did that with them for about three years. And then they sold the farm to another family who decided to turn it into a wedding venue. So, yeah. So in a perfect world, I would probably still be doing it because my partnership with them was so great and they were so wonderful. But then the farm, fa- the the wedding family came along and really were not happy with us uh, being there. Now, our vision, my vision did not suit their brand. <laughs> God, what a bummer. And, uh, it was a bummer. It was a bummer. It really was. But just goes to show like having a wedding like there is more lucrative to them than having a CSA and growing food. Oh, uh, <laughs> there's a tale to be told in that whole story. I mean, anyway, yeah, we'll go into that's, it. that's the wedding industrial complex right there. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, that, that is interesting though. Like thinking about you, like, you know, stepping away from it because you had a second kid and it was just too much. Mm-hmm. It, this is not something I was planning on talking about, but it's been on my mind and I've been wanting to talk to someone about is this whole idea. And I'm going to preface this by saying that I hate this term. It's been coined by, I guess, the media, but I hate it. And I'd love for us to rebrand it. The she session that we're in right now. Have you you heard about this? No, I haven't. Well, first off, we got to rebrand it. So maybe when I explain what it is, you'll be like, oh, I have a cuter name. Um, Okay. So roll off the tongue, right? So Uh basically it's this idea well, I mean, it's indicated by statistics that the recession that's been created by the pandemic specifically has affected women and women of color, even more specifically, more than anyone else in the United States. So in April, I want to say that the country added about 260,000 new jobs, which was very disappointing. Uh, they had, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Economists had been targeting a million. So that was already bummer wow. news. But even crazier about that is all those jobs went to men. Oh, my God. It's like I'd be disappointed if I just wasn't, like, 
obviously. Yeah, <laughs> I know, right? You're like, of course it did, right? It's, but it's like, are we in a time? Did we suddenly hop in a time machine? Is this like the 80s? Is this the 60s? No, this is happening right now. And so, so many women left the workforce for a for a wide array of reasons during the pandemic, you know, because their children weren't going to school, because mm-hmm. they had to care for someone else in their home, because they lived with other people who were at risk and didn't want to expose them by going out to their jobs, or because they were just straight off, straight up laid off, right? And specifically, right. women have been really intensely impacted by this. I was doing some other reading about how women 35 and up are particularly fucked right now, part of my French, because- yeah. They no one wants to pay for their experience to bring them back to work, so they're being replaced by less expensive, less experienced people in their previous jobs. And Mm -hmm. they might, and you know, they can't like go get a McDonald's job and support their families or themselves, right? But also, if you're talking about um, these women, not all of these people in this group are mothers, but if you are. I think that there's a stigma to hiring mothers because oh, for sure. what if you have to leave because your kid gets sick or whatever? I've had to leave because my kid got sick. Oh, you know, it's just totally. like I luckily where I worked for a female owned business of that was owned by mothers, so it was like fine. They were like, "Oh, please, like go," but um, you know, I think for the, like the majority, like that's a, a, that there's a risk. They see it as a risk. Oh, definitely. Mothers, whereas they should see it as there are great benefits because you don't want to lose your job because you got a family to support. You know, and so you're going to anyway. keep working really hard. So on and yeah, so forth. I agree yeah. that you're you're going to be more engaged because you need that job. You know, it, right? It takes me back to when I was working retail and I was a department manager, and there was an epidemic of head lice at Dylan's daycare, and I mean, it was like, oh my god. As fast as we would get the head lice out of our home, they would come back again. Because you know how mm-hmm. it is. It's like one kid, oh, yeah. one other kid, and it just keeps coming around. And, yeah, you know. We've, been th- we've all been through that. Yes. Yes. No. And <laughs> you also know that, like, if your kid has head lice, they can't be at daycare. They have right. to be sent home. And so I would get these calls at work, like, hey, you have to come and pick up Dylan. The head lice is back. And I remember specifically the store merchandiser that I was working with who would have been like, you know, a superior to me, finally being like, I feel like you don't care about this job because you're always leaving to go deal with Dylan's head lice. And I was like, "Uh, this is a really like out of my control situation. The kind of situation that you have when you have children it has yes. nothing to do with me or anything I'm doing. And she was basically like, you need to get it together and make oh sure gosh. this doesn't happen again. And that was terrifying for me. It's like, and it's a common tale it that is a I've common heard tale. told. Yes. Yeah, I've heard told. And not even just children. Like, what if you have a health condition and you have oh, to go? Yeah. I remember at the job where we worked together, <laughs> I was dealing with some weird mystery illness that would make it so I couldn't open my right eye. All oh, the my way. God. And I don't know if you remember this. I, I didn't talk a lot about it because I was just so stressed out about it. And like the only time I could go to my doctor was during the day and I'd take these long lunch breaks and I'd have to drive over the bridge and like try to get it all in an hour. And if I was waiting in the doctor's office to see the doctor, like I would be so stressed out the whole time and I'd ride back. And my manager said something to me too. She's like, you know, you just can't take um, office time to go and go to the doctor. That is I'm like, ridiculous. Okay, but I have to like I have to do my job which requires my eyes to be working like functioning yeah. properly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean Oh my god. I've been down this road <laughs> where I was dealing with a health issue that was requiring a lot of testing, you know? And mm-hmm. like I, 
I mean, you don't get to control when these things happen. And if you need no. an ultrasound, you're going to go when they say you can. And my boss also was like, it just seems like you've been going to the doctor a lot lately. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm actually really terrified that I might have cancer. Yeah. And then it was like, oh, okay, well, you know. But well, you, uh, don't let it affect your job performance. Yeah, we're here for you, but, like, please don't take more time off. Right. Oh, it's insane. Yeah. It's so insane. It's so insane insane when you sit, like, when you don't really think about it too hard when you're in the thick of it. But man, it's so insane. (laughs) I know. I know. I still think about a manager giving me a hard time because my child keeps catching head lice. Listen, it was a nightmare for me. Okay. Yeah, it's a nightmare. But also, do they want really want you there with the head lice? I know. Like, uh, what I, about that part of it? Yeah, no one, no one was thinking know. about that. I remember that same job. We had a, like a scabies outbreak, not affiliated with me or my child. It was something yeah. to do with people in their lo- in the locker room. But yeah. it was like a similarly <laughs> like someone was express- expressing frustration that people couldn't work because they had scabies, and I was like, um. Mm. Yeah, I feel like this is a good good reason. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's just like, oh, the goddamn bottom line. Jeez. Dude, I can't even imagine. <laughs> I mean, obviously I lost my job early in the pandemic. I know you did too. I can't mm-hmm. imagine working through it and having to deal with the nonstop terror and anxiety that someone in your home is going to get sick and then I you might either. not get to work either. I mean, I I have so much empathy for everyone who has had to deal with that and keep keep going. I mean, what a yeah. traumatic day-to-day experience. Yes. I think it'll be interesting to see all of the trauma that all people have held on will hold on to because of this in different ways. But I, yeah. you know, going back to the whole being a parent during this, specifically being a mother during this, you know, we're the ones that have that invisible burden of being the caregiver, no matter what it all costs. No matter. Right? No matter. Even if you're the breadwinner, yeah. even if, if your job is, you know, super, super intense and whatever, we still, it still falls on us. And we all, we have to do a perfect job at both, right? Um, and where was I going with this? Oh, when the pandemic happened and I had friends that were, you know, teachers or were working from home and had their kids at home with them. Oh. Like even even bringing in somebody for childcare was such an unbelievable risk yeah. to your family because you had to. There, there was it was impossible to know what they were doing. I mean, you could ask, but even them going to the store presented a risk. So it was just like. I don't know. I, re- I just remember my next door neighbors who both worked full time at really stressful jobs, having two young kids, both under the age of six home uh-huh. and not, not feeling comfortable bringing anybody in. And it just, uh, anyway, yeah, <laughs> we can do anything. We got through this. <laughs> yeah. And so I think it'll be interesting. I mean, not even interesting. I feel very concerned that we yes. are about to travel back in time economically, specifically for women. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because I just – I don't think a lot – I mean, I know I'm not getting my career back. And I I have talked to other women who feel similarly. I actually was speaking to a reporter a while back about different unemployment experiences, conversations she'd been having with people. And she mm-hmm. was saying, yeah, a lot of people are just like, well, I'm never going to have a job again, so I'm going to start my own business. Yeah. I, I mean, that actually, when you said that, that crossed my mind. I'm like, we're all just going to have to start our own thing. Yeah, which I'm kind of excited about. <laughs> it, it's exciting, but it's like that there's also like a lot of pre- privilege in that. It's true. In order to be able to do that is like, wow, like the obstacles to that are just wow. 
But, yeah. you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you're a woman, especially if you're a woman of color, even more so. Oh, gosh, if even you more are so. a woman with children, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. maybe. And if you're like a single parent, I mean, th- this is this is a scary situation for me. And I feel like I was relatively unscathed by the great recession because I was so entry level that like I practically worked for free anyway. So no one thought mm-hmm. about cutting me. Yeah. But I also can see how that long term impacted my career because I probably would have ended up being like president somewhere of a company if I hadn't been in the midst working through the midst of a wage and promotion freeze for so long. Right. Right. And if you were the CEO of that company, the freaking culture would change and they'd start <laughs> slowing down their fashion. Yeah. And- <laughs> You know, and they'd actually make clothes for fat people. Like, come on. Well, that's that's actually a great Uh, transition into what you're doing right now. Hi, this is Carrie, executive editor of Clotheshorse.World, here with a quick update on what's happening on the blog. Our theme this month is personal style how you define it, and incorporate it into your daily life. This week, we have lots of practical advice for your reading pleasure. Kicking things off on Monday, Alex, our vintage detective, gives us a very thorough guide to thrifting like a pro. On Tuesday, Bethany shares the ingenious ways that she displays her clothes and accessories at home so that she can shop from her closet. So many great ideas. On Wednesday, Elise, our fantastic community outreach resident and proud outfit repeater, showcases a thrifted dress that she has worn year-round and all around the world. And finally, on Thursday, we have a report from Haley about her May sales results on Poshmark, Vinted, Mercari, and Depop. A reminder that July will be Body and Beauty Month on the blog, and we're interested in your thoughts about the wellness industry how you've come to define beauty, and what you do to feel good in your body. The deadline to submit for this theme is June 19th, but we're happy to get submissions on any subject, anytime. This platform is for you, and we're so impressed with the stories that we've been working on. I'm calling you a style influencer. I heard you call yourself a content creator. Uh, I call myself a content creator too, which always makes me feel like I'm some cool like Gen Z on TikTok. Um, it's just so it rolls off your tongue, content creator. No, I mean I don't. I don't consider myself an influencer, and it's not for any like um, like any hip like um, way uh, reason. It's uh, more just because I don't have like a, a ton of followers, and I kind of started this as a just a hobby. Um, so. I loved my job. I loved my job. I when I before the pandemic, I was working at a cafe in the town where I lived. I wa- walked to work. It was female owned, female run. Oh, sounds amazing. It was like I I have chills even talking about it. I loved working at this place. I was working as a cook, um, as a vegan cook, and um, I had worked as a vegan cook for a bunch of other places and was still working for other places at the time. Um, but they, I came in. They were like, "Give us whatever." like make a vegan menu for us. This is what we've been wanting. So they gave me full autonomy. Um, and just like amazing people to work with, super open-minded. Like it was great. It became a huge part of my identity as it does. And I think like that's a kind of a problem for me, but I think it's something that a lot of people do. So this is my identity. And the pandemic came and fucking shit on my dreams. <laughs> 
as dun, it did dun, for dun. a lot of people, right? Yeah. I, I was just like, it's going to be a couple weeks, like we all did. Right. You know, I'm a Pollyanna. Gone by Easter. Exactly. It'll be fine. We got this. We're just, and even like my bosses were like, we got this. this is what you got to do. They ended up just running the company themselves, the two of them. They had to lay off everyone, which I think was pretty fair the way they did it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so suddenly I was thrust into this, like, who am I? Again, yet again, I'm like, freaking, do I have to reinvent myself again? Like, I'm tired. <laughs> I'm tired. I need to figure out who I am for once. Right, but right. anyway, um, so I was like, how am I going to, I think, like, my job kind of helped with my mental health. I deal, you know, with anxiety, depression, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it really kind of, like, helped me to kind of maintain this equilibrium that I needed. And suddenly I was kind of knocked off of my stilts and uh, I needed to figure out something to do. Um, I was going to, so both of my kids were home suddenly. Um, One of them could do full remote schooling on a computer and was really good about it. Um, She's in third grade. So it was like, you know, easy for her to do all that, um, which I was lucky. And with that, because like mm-hmm. a lot of people are just like, this is such yeah. a challenge. Um, and then I had a preschooler who couldn't do remote. So I I was suddenly her homeschooling teacher and I ordered a homeschooling <laughs> program and I was like, I, I'm a homeschooler now, you know, which much love to homeschoolers. That is the hardest thing I've ever done. Oh my God. Ever. I cannot even imagine. It was... <laughs> insane i tried to be this like um this like you know very like i guess cottage core comes <laughs> <laughs> on trend on trend i tried to be this cottage core homeschooler and we'd pick flowers and we'd draw them and talk about them and like but it was freaking exhausting and it was never ending um so anyway i thought to myself what can i do let me give myself a job <laughs> and and I and I also wasn't getting dressed and I wasn't taking care, you know, I wasn't like brushing my hair some days. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you know what, I'm gonna give myself accountability and how can I do it? I'm gonna do what these plus size um influencers that I love that are lifting me, literally lifting me out of the ditch right now. I'm gonna do what they do. Not because I want like not to you know not to have a following or whatever, more just accountability to get up, put on a cute outfit, brush my hair, you know, mm-hmm. and and post something and, you know, and I'll make sure that I do it. I think it was, I said like three days a week. So I started doing that and not really thinking anything of it. And I started to like make friends with people on there, not only friends, but I started to make friends with the people that were so influential, influential to me. And I like, I couldn't believe how accessible these people were and we're talking about things that I'd never talked about before with others. Um, and it just like turned into something and now it's just, you know, it's kind of like what I do. I don't know. I mean, I, <laughs> There's a I piece love of that. it that's a part of every day for me. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's like, very creative and it doesn't come without its challenges. There are definitely things about it that I don't like that I'm trying to change. For example, I don't want to just be somebody out here selling things. Right. Like I think that that happens and that's not really what I want. Um, But at the same time, I want people to know like I'm a plus size person. I've almost always been a plus size person and you can dress a certain way. It's not that perfect, <laughs> but if you if you if you dress a certain way, you feel a certain way. It's social currency, right? Mm-hmm. And it's about it's about value and how you see yourself in the world. And 
I don't know. And it changed a lot of things for me. There's something to be said for purpose, right? Yeah. Having purpose yeah. and, and um, having somebody that's like waiting for you and relying on you. I mean, you get that by being a parent, but it's like, it's different. It is Having different. a job yeah. is a reprieve from being parenting. I think one can sometimes, you know, I'm going to be a real, I'm going to quote Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> Right. I remember a quote of hers where she's she was like, "Well, I do both, and one is a reprieve from the other, and both you know both make me better at the other." Oh, totally, totally. I mean, I would say, you know, when Dylan was very young, no one would hire me because, like you said, no one wanted to hire someone with a kid because I couldn't, I wouldn't be available three hundred sixty-five days a year. Like, whether it's legal to discriminate against people who have children or not. It happens. Mm-hmm. It happens. Yeah. It happens. Oh, absolutely. They don't have to tell you why they didn't hire exactly. you. They could just say that you weren't a good fit. Yeah. And then you you're know. like, okay, cool. Yeah. And so right. I couldn't get it. I could not find a job for a very long time. And it was hard to mm-hmm. just parent 24 hours a day. The only person I was seeing was a toddler and, mm-hmm. and just – like that wasn't that wasn't my happy place. I know for of a lot of not. people it is, right? Yeah. Oh, and that's fine. Yeah, I think totally. that's great. But I also have always said when it comes to parenting, and I know we're trying to change gears here, but just as an aside, I always said we're doing it wrong with parenting. We're doing it wrong. We're sitting in our little houses with our with our little child and we're their world and they're ours. And this is just not how humans are supposed no, to be. We're no. supposed to be in a tribe somewhere and all the kids are supposed to be raising themselves with each yeah, other. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like all the other adults are the parent figure to all the kids. And you know, and I kind of like tried to I kind of built that in my community. I was very lucky, but I think that's rare. Definitely, you know. Definitely. So, yeah. Anyway, we're doing it wrong. We are, as we are. Wrong. Many things. We are. We are. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I think it's really cool that this misery of the pandemic of kind of losing your sense of purpose gave you a new one because that's what that's what happened for me. It was like finally, I have I have a mission again. Yeah, and I yeah. I hope that we're going to see a lot of people doing cool stuff. I mean, I already am. So many people have started businesses because they were like, I have to do something. And I think this could be a sea change. So have you been approached by brands to do partnerships or anything like that? All the time. Yes. All the time. That's what I thought. And so I, because you come from a unique background, not that you've had 900 jobs, but that you've worked in the industry and you know, you know how shitty it can be, right? I do. Yeah. Does that make it harder to figure out who you want to work with or to just think about partnering with some of these brands at all? It does because it's, it's complicated. So, um, on the one hand, I don't want to just sell things to people. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I want people to know that, that, that these options are out there. Mm -hmm. So it makes it a sticky wicket, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have turned down brands, but I don't do it very often. Mm-hmm. And why have you turned them down? I have turned down brands that were very fast fashion. Okay. I mean, that's great. <laughs> I'm not going to name names. <laughs> that's you fine. You can go ahead and take your guesses as to what those would be. <laughs> um, but those are the ones that like – I mean, I haven't done a ton of research in like exploit 
adaptation and, you know, and stealing um, creative ideas and that kind of thing. So when the news of those things reaches me, I, I try to read it and, and take it into account when I make my own decisions about what I buy. And in this case about who I work with mm-hmm. in that case, uh, yeah, I was like, no, I can't do this. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think like a, a lot of brands who've done a lot of great things, like nothing is perfect. Like I always love how you say, like, it's not, it's about progress, not perfection. Like they'll have, um, you know, they'll, they'll be doing really great things as far as body inclusivity, but then you'll know like that they didn't always show lots of diversity in their marketing. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, huh, it just becomes like this hard thing. And it's like, we have so few, I'm like a, I'm probably like a three, a two X, three X. Okay. So I can I mean, I'm considered like a small fat person. Right. 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 Um, so a lot of times if a brand does uh, an extended size line or um, extended or sizing, I'm usually included in that. Um, so like uh, what I'm doing now is I'm trying to work with brands that go beyond that. Um, so brands that go up to like a six X or a seven X or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that there's change there that you can, you know, you can help with the change there. Totally. I don't know. Totally. I mean, do you have some favorites that are doing that right now? Um, well, I've worked with Eloquy. Um, they do a lot of extended sizing. Um, I do, I work with Dia and co they go up to, uh, I think a size 30 size 10 to 30, um, universal standard. I'm doing stuff with them, but I mean, there's also problems there, right? There's always, it's not, it's not perfect. I mean, yeah, but if I'm going to make a difference in the in the body, in, you know, in the I'm not going to call it body body positive space, uh, but if I'm going to show people because I'm a fat fashion content creator, if I'm going to show mm-hmm. them like what's possible, sometimes I'm going to work with brands that are still working on themselves. <laughs> I mean, I, I that's, that's the reality of it right now. Right, I, right. I mean, that's what I tell everybody. Like, you have to pick pick your issue mm-hmm. and go with it because. Nobody Once, is doing it perfectly. Right. Yeah. No, nobody's doing it perfectly. Um, you know, there are definitely brands that I would love to work with that are both like working with sustainable materials, f- you know, paying fair wages, like doing like ticking lots of the boxes for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're smaller brands that aren't going to work with somebody like me because I don't have a huge following. Exactly. Exactly. So that has to make it more difficult. That's something I've thought about a lot. And it seems, not even seems, this is in fact reality, that the fastest fast fashion brands have been the ones that have jumped on extended sizing the most, right? Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think that is? This is something I ask everyone because I don't know. Yeah. I've been thinking about this so much and I have a very imperfect answer, a very imperfect theory. Okay. Um, My theory is that it comes from the top, right? And by the top, I mean high fashion. Right. I'm talking like like Gucci, like Dolce Gabbana, like, you know, these Mm -hmm. like high fashion runway brands, right? So those are brands that um, like all other brands are trying to emulate the coolness of them, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) They're they're, um, aspirational. Right. So these very fast fashion brands, they're just about the speed trends, making lots of money really fast. (laughs) They they don't really care about that overarching, 
image. Right, right. right. Whereas these brands that are in the middle that are still fast fashion brands, a lot of people don't realize it, but are, Mm -hmm. um, are like, well, to be cool is to fall within this standard of beauty that is set by by these high fashion brands. So we're not going to do it because we don't want people to think we're not cool. And that's not, I'm going to like, I'm going to go out on a limb here. That's dangerous. And it's kind of like, it's kind of violent, right? Yeah. (laughs) Because it feeds into this idea of like, again, social currency and value and how fat people are. And I just speak to fat people because there's all these other like, you know, the body positive movement was started by fat black um, and disabled women, right? Mm -hmm. So like, I'm just going to speak to it as a white you know, cis woman, mm-hmm. um, that it it's it, it's about being cool, <laughs> you I, know. And, yeah. and if a brand's like they're not cool, people like you don't understand. Like you don't even we don't even see how much fashion influences the way people think about people. Oh yeah. If, they, if we're not included, this brand is saying they're not worthy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it feeds into things that are. Scary, like medical bias, which I like have directly experienced, even as a small fat person. And I have like, there's this whole hierarchy within plus size community, like thin faced plus size people, you know? So I have that privilege and have still like had a cardiologist was like, you know, you should really think about gastric bypass surgery. What? Yes. So I went for, <laughs> I went to the doctor because my dad passed away of a heart attack when I was very young. So mm-hmm. preventatively, like, you know, as a preventative medicine, I go to the cardiologist and I get everything checked out. Well, I didn't go to the do- doctor for a very long time until, you know, I, I started realizing like, I'm, uh, I'm getting to be older. I should probably start to like make watch things, make sure that everything's looking okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went and he had this, this cardiologist who was a fat cardiologist. He had, um, and I don't use that word derogatory, just so you know. Right. Um, Fat is, you know, neutral term to me. Um, He looked at my paperwork and my my last blood work had been from when I had my second child, like, which was like four years prior. And he was like, your cholesterol is really high. Oh, God. He said, you should probably think about gastric gastric bypass surgery. (sighs) And and I don't know if anybody realizes the high risk that comes with gas. Like, people die from gastric bypass Um, surgery. My dad had it. Last year, oh, really? and wow. he had um, well, for one, he had blood clots, and uh-huh. blood then clots, yeah. he had a bowel obstruction, which is oh my gosh. So I'm freaking out when they admit him to the hospital during COVID, so no one can see him. He's just there in the emergency Shit. room alone. That's terrible. And they're scheduling him for surgery, and I was like, my whole family was freaking out, and I was like, okay, I'm going to be the one who figured like educates myself about this, so I can make everybody else feel better, and. Like, it is not an exaggeration to say that that is a common complication of yeah. gastric bypass surgery. In fact, that was the adjective that I encountered time and time again, that it's very common because mm-hmm. the weight loss is so fast and it's yeah. not healthy. My dad felt like shit for at least the first three oh, months. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and that's – a lot of people say that. Yeah, he felt terrible. And uh, you lose so much visceral fat that you're – organs start moving around because that's what was holding <gasps> them in place. And so oh it's God. very common for your 
you know, your intestines to twist around because they're no longer being held in place the same way. It is a common, common side effect, complication, if you will. And it is not like a little tiny surgery. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and like I've heard about people who like you can't get the your you can't eat as much, so you can't get the nutrients that you need, that and your my, hair starts yeah, falling out, yeah. and like nothing. Like that's a decision that I do not judge. Like you right. make that decision, and I think that's fine. But for a medic, like for a doctor Ugh. to say that to me, and then it turns out that the blood work that he had, I said, was from when I was pregnant. Your cholesterol can rise up to fifty percent when you're pregnant. It's just a normal thing wow. that happens to support your your growing child. Right. And my cholesterol is actually quite low. <laughs> it was just that I didn't have updated blood work and he took one look at me and he's like, you're a fatty, so you have cholesterol what problems and you should be thin. <laughs> I mean, this is so common though, even through the pandemic. Yeah. And that's really not that bad. I mean, I've heard some stories that were just like totally insane. It, and it was just like on like the recent season of Shrill. I haven't Eddie seen Bryant's that one yet. Yeah, she experiences um, medical bias. But anyway. I love that show. That show changed so much for me. It really did. So much. I'm just like so glad it's out there because I think, I mean, and I hope that it's helping people see the aggressions that they engage in. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think at the end of the day, concern trolling is is a big problem, but it's like we have to realize, like those of us looking at it happening, maybe not even being engaged in it, have to realize that it's not really concern. It's like it's coming from no. somebody. So I, I talk about this a lot. We look at fat people, myself in that group, and – we don't have value for them, right? Us. And Mm -hmm. um, we think, how are they happy? I'm not happy. And I fit within this standard of beauty and standard of health. Health. I'll I'll put it, I'm putting Mm -hmm. it in air quotes. Um, Yeah. How are they not happy? And then, so I need to say something to them to make myself feel better. So concern trolling Mm -hmm. becomes the simplest, you know, the lowest lying fruit. You know, and I've lived in a thin body and in a fat body. So I, I could see the very distinct difference of being so visibly seen, right? We can't hide, mm-hmm. but being being so yeah. invisible at the same time. But also like, yeah. you're like, we're such a target. Like we're such an easy target. <laughs> so I don't know. It's such a problem. And it's like, it's so multifaceted. <sighs> and I see it like, I see it even in like kids movies still where these tropes still exist. Now I was in the, I was a fat kid during friends and to a fat kid in the nineties. And this like, I'm so like, I'm not going to say triggered. It's not the right word. I'm, I'm feeling away, (laughs) feeling away about this friends uh, reunion because it's like this show brought me so like did so much damage to me as a as a kid but not only damaged me but it created this thing that people believed in right which is the fat monica mm-hmm. trope and so many people Ugh. are talking about it right now i'm not original but like I, you even you see this these same ideas like a fat woman. I watched a movie recently. I can't I can't remember what it was called. A kids cartoon movie, and there was one. No, there were two fat people in the movie. One female identifying, one male identifying, and it was just the female identifying fat woman was the over sexualized, throwing herself at men, Ugh. very masculine voice. 
um, female. And I was just like, fuck, like, are you kidding? Excuse me. Are you kidding? And then the male um, fat person was a clown and he just kept getting fatter and fatter because this movie took place over time. And I was like, and this Mm -hmm. is what my kids are seeing. And it's starting here. I'm working Mm -hmm. like we're Mm -hmm. working against so much and it seems like so little, but it's such a huge thing. So anyway, it comes from like going back to the fashion relation to it. Um, it, it comes from the top. I think so too. I mean, I've literally been in meetings where someone has said, mm, using a plus size model isn't aspirational. You know, like one of my jobs, I was really campaigning aggressively for us to add sizes. And I said, you know, we can't just add sizes, but then not shoot them on the models that they fit, right? Like that why that's so fucked up and also how if if you don't care about people or doing the right thing how about if i just phrase it you can't sell stuff if people don't know you sell mm-hmm, it right mm-hmm. so we have to bring in larger models like we need at least one plus size model for each collection and you know then the the, the squabbling was like okay well we don't want it to be the lead image that you see when you're shopping and i was like why do you have data that proves no. anything that changes that because I was like at Mod Cloth, we were like raking in the dough mm-hmm. by actually being good humans and serving customers who want to buy clothing yeah. and feel good, just like everybody else who's like a smaller mm-hmm. size. And um, it was like, yeah, well, I just, I just don't think it's gonna like we're gonna see it, we're gonna see a decline in sales of that style because it's just not aspirational. I mean, anecdotally. Right, like that's not true, right? I know it's not true. <laughs> the employer that I had worked the longest before I went to ModCloth was the terrible company where you and I both worked. And of course they did not, I mean, everybody, like the culture is was so thin obsessed there that I felt embarrassed eating lunch. And of course our clothes ran like two sizes too small. And of course the models we used in our campaigns were all like 14 mm-hmm. and prepubescent, yeah. right? But then I worked at ModCloth and I saw that actually their plus size business what was was what was driving that entire mm-hmm. company. That sales had plateaued a long time ago and it was really by serving this customer who everyone else was ignoring mm-hmm. that this company was growing and growing. And so coming from that experience, I was like, why – why are all of you so stupid? (laughs) Like you do all these other really cruel, exploitive things to all the name of making money, right? Like that's the reason. If you're really in the game to just make money, why are you leaving so much on the table? I just just, don't get it. I just recently um, likened it to – because it's all fake, right? Like all these new standards are made up. All these ideas about who's cool and who's not are made up, right? Because if we look through history, there are times when, you know, women would shave their heads halfway up there, you know, halfway up their head and Mm -hmm. shave their eyebrows off because that's what was beauty. And we look at now and they're like, that's wild. That's not beautiful. It's like it was then. Somebody had an idea (laughs) and said it and a lot of people believed it, right? And so I recently likened it to Crocs. Okay, okay. so Crocs, right? Crocs are Mm -hmm. like the shoe and they're really effing ugly. 
And right? <laughs> I'm alone in the Yeah, I mean, they're they really are. ugly. And they had like a little like they had a little life where they were, you know, people wore them, but not because they were cool. They wore them because they were new and they were, you know, easy to put on and they're great for kids and they're, you know, you can just wash them and they're uh-huh. great for nursing and, you know, working in a kitchen, that kind of thing, because they're very washable. Um, well now right. crocs are cool, right? All of a sudden, uh-huh. I'm not sure if your viewers have noticed this. Oh, no. I mean, I, I have been wearing them. Yeah. Oh, my God. I have Crocs. Like, look at my Instagram. They're, like, all over the place. Somebody yeah. said it was true, and a bunch of people believed it. Somebody oh, said God, that fat yeah. people or, you know, disabled people, black people were not beautiful, and people believed it. I mean, there's is a huge discussion in this. It has to do with control and power, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But where mm-hmm. I'm looking at it, I'm looking at it from the image part, right? Somebody said that fat people weren't beautiful and a lot of people believed it. And so a lot of companies are very scared to serve that community because they're going to, you know, have to show us and they're going to have to include us. And what if the thin people see it? What's going to happen to their their customer base? You know, and it's really, it's so stupid if you think about it. But I've been thinking a lot about this because I recently talked about this on my TikTok and about this very issue and it went crazy and people were like, oh my gosh, that's right. Like that makes total sense that companies think that way. But also the part that we're not thinking about is that those companies, and you said it, are made up of people that are within that standard of beauty. I know that at the company, the fashion companies I worked at, I was probably one of the only fat people there. And why is that? Mm -hmm. It's because we don't have a stake in fashion. We're not given a stake. And why is that? Because we're not given things to, uh, we're not given an invitation via Uh, options, clothing options. Oh, for sure. So I went into fashion, like I said, very accidentally. And I I think that if more fat people went into fashion, then there would be more people at the table making these decisions. At the one company where, or I pitched a plus size line at more than one company, but at the main one, um, I was the only person. What if I had had five fat people behind me being like, yeah, here's what we want. Here's what we're doing. You know, like, would it have been mm-hmm. different? And, and that whole idea also influences society. It, and it becomes mm-hmm. a very big, mm-hmm. um, a big topic because if you're, if you're not seeing fat people in marketing, then you're not giving value to fat to people that look different and it, it mm-hmm. just, it becomes this never ending cycle. And I hope it's changing because I'm, I'm thinking about where I was 15 years ago and what was available to me and what's available now. And it is like, I know the younger people that are like interested in fashion and are plus size, like will not understand this. There were two options and it was Lane Bryant and Torrid. I remember yep. going out with you specifically. We were going out to, um, where did we used to go? What was the place called? Uh, the Barbary. Yeah, we were going to the Barbary. <laughs> and you and um, another gal that you hung out with um, were like, we're going to go and we're going to get outfits and we're going to, you know, and I was like, oh, God, what do I do? What do I wear? Like, there's no way I can wear cool clothes and go to this cool bar, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, because there was nothing. There was nothing. 
And, and you just really, you had to make it work. And occasionally you'd get lucky and like Lane Bryant would make a shirt that was like somewhat like cool or I'd like cut it or I'd like sew it so that it would be, you know, and it's just, uh-huh. uh, but it's different. Like now you can get things. It's not great. And it's oftentimes like we were talking about, it's fast fashion and yeah. cheap materials and you smell because the fabric is made of plastic, Yeah, you yep. know, but, um. It, at least that's changing and I and I hope that has kind of a domino effect and people will go into fashion because they have a, st- a bit more of a stake in it and you know that's my wish anyway I mean I th- I think that is amazing to think about because in my career you know going back to you know we're talking about how like if you applied for a job and didn't get it because they were concerned about you having a kid. Of course, they're not going to say that. They say you're just not a fit. And everywhere I've worked in fashion, this term gets thrown around that I hate, which is cultural fit. And Hmm. the idea of cultural fit, I suppose, is that you would theoretically, like if the company is really into like working really hard and playing hard or something, I don't know, that you would would ascribe to that same lifestyle. But that's – when we're talking about a company that just, like, makes clothes, what is it – what does it mean to be a cultural fit and why does that term get thrown out? And I think it often comes into, like, someone that we would want to represent our brand. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there are so many times in my career where we would bring in candidates who weren't white, you know, or they weren't mm-hmm. pretty enough or they didn't have nice teeth. I just don't think they're a cultural fit. Like that would be the pushback. Not that like they didn't have the right experience or that they weren't smart or didn't have good style. You know, that that was the kind of thing we would hear. And I'm going to tell you, I never once in my career have interviewed someone for a job who was larger than a size medium mm-hmm. because – HR is gatekeeping that in the first place. They're not letting those people come in for interviews. Yeah. And that is why everybody in the industry is skinny and like oh, unhappy. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. like the level of food negotiations my coworkers have been having throughout my career. I mean, I I struggle with the same thing because I'm like if I eat too much food for lunch, people are going to talk about me. Oh or my I, gosh. I have, yes. a, I have a phobia <laughs> about eating in a meeting at all. Eating in public. Yeah. You only have a bunch of skinny, hungry people working in an industry that says, okay, now we're going to pick out clothes for larger people and we're going to gatekeep what we think they should wear. Mm-hmm. And I was telling you when I started at ModCloth, we had a separate buying team for plus sizes and all of the women on that team were like a size double zero. They would be like, uh, yeah, the arms always have to be covered. Um, We don't want to show any cleavage. Um, It has to be like this. It definitely has to go below the knees because we don't, you know, we don't want to see those knees, like that kind of stuff. And I was like, what? Wait, did you guys like do consumer insights, like research on this? Like, is that is that how you know this? And they were like, no, we just know. And I was like, because I, I think you're wrong. Like, I. I come from a family of fat people, you know, mm-hmm. like, yeah. and I haven't seen everyone walking around in like what apparently looks like a graduation gown with a belt. Do you see what you're trying to put out here? Oh, um, God. oh that, yeah, that hit. Right? Yes. Right? Whatever this idea was that we were supposed to be buying was just so, so wrong. And it was really about these, these buyers own visions 
of what it's like to be fat. Right. Or what the media portrays us to be. Yes. Yes. Which is fat Monica. (laughs) Like asexual, um, you know, non like covered up, stupid. No one likes them. No one wants to go out with them. No one likes them. them. They're super annoying. Grumpy clothes. Yeah. Yeah. Like like the, the conceit there is like, because you have to remember that Monica is actually kind of like a really annoying character who's like yeah. really uptight and controlling and, you know, and it's okay. It's it's cute when she's thin and she's like that. Mm-hmm. But when she's not, it's it's just like pr- further proof that she is a terrible disaster of a person. Mm-hmm. And I also like – I didn't see Friends when it was on contemporarily. I – have only seen it. This is so weird, but like traveling, it's always on TV in other countries, which is another. <laughs> That's really funny. It's really funny, but also like, oh, is this what oh, I want our God. primary export yeah. to be? Right. And I saw several of the episodes with Monica in the fat suit, and it makes me so angry. It makes me angry too. Plus, she's like, she's smaller than most plus size people, even in the fat suit. Yeah. And what does that mean? Like, yeah, it's yeah. just. Yeah, and we're supposed to think she, it's funny. It's yeah. funny when Monica's in the fat suit. Yeah, right. Yeah, and there's still a lot of that being the butt of the joke. It's it's like it's the, it's such an acceptable form of discrimination that it's just wild. And people don't even notice they're doing it because it's so ingrained. Oh, totally. But there's also this hierarchy, right, that we create as humans where we always want somebody to be below us, right? Mm-hmm. And as long as fat people are below us, there's always going to be. Or as long as, you know, this is this is a, a huge – like I talk about this with my husband a lot about how this is a big contributor to our current – or our, you know, previous slash current political – situation that we're in. It's people feeling like they want somebody to be below them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How do we change this? Well, I think it has to come from the top. Mm -hmm. I think that's a part of it. I think it it is changing, but it's very slow. Very slow. But I tend to be like a hopeful, optimistic person. So I could be (laughs) totally off base. Like, like, who knows? Um, yeah, but I think it comes from the top and I think it comes from high, if we're speaking strictly in within fashion, Mm -hmm. um, it has to come from representation. Mm -hmm. So representation is everything. The more you see fat bodies being cool, aspirational, fashionable, um, sexy, the more you see it, the more you believe it. Seeing Mm -hmm. is believing, you know? But until that happens, like even brands that are considered inclusive um, don't often, I'm thinking of like Madewell, don't show fat people on their right. Instagram feeds. You know, they don't, they offer this and it's all, it's kind of like, you're welcome, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. No, um, I think that's they, true. It's yeah, like, and walk the walk. Walk the walk. I'm also having a hard time with eth- the word ethical. So there's brands that are touting we're sustainable and ethical fashion mm-hmm. for all. Sustainable, ethical fashion for all. And I'm like, great, I have an option because I'm trying to be I'm trying to make better choices here. Um, and I'm trying to influence others to make, you know, better choices if they can. And I go in and it goes up to an XL. 
I'm sorry, but how are you ethical if you only go up to an XL? I mean, there you go. It's not ethical to to totally eliminate an entire group from, you know, who you serve. Exactly, exactly. And also, it's like an extra large, but it really fits like a medium. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's- and even that's a big problem, too, because even um, – I know like Chloe, like the high like the high fashion brand, Chloe. They mm-hmm. go up to like I think like a two X, but a two X is a fourteen. Yeah. That's so that's not it's just it's it's just all very strange. And so I mean, I think what people are doing that are doing it themselves, and I, I kind of think of myself as that, um, kind of like forgetting about the risk of what people are going to say and how people are going to treat you while doing it. I'm just going to put myself out there so people can see it. The more they see it, the more they're going to they're gonna believe it. And I'm talking about my audience is mostly plus size people. The more they see it, the more they're going to believe it. And then they're going to do that, do it themselves. And hopefully it'll be a domino effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? I mean, that, and, that's my hope too. And just education and, and, you know, calmly talking to people about their biases. And that's yes. really hard too. Yeah. Especially like, you know, I know our, my parents' generation, like being thin was a big thing. And they're still like to this day counting calories and doing Weight Watchers and this and that. And I'm oh. like, I did it all. I did it all. And I'm not spending my life doing that anymore. I'm not. I mean- I'm just not going to do it. Our parents came up in that culture, and I felt that pressure around me all course, the time. That adults would talk about my child body mm-hmm. and express concern or not concern. All the time. Oh, all my the God. Time. My mom mm-hmm. would do it so much with Dylan. Like, you need to put Dylan on a diet. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And I feel like we make them into villains for doing that, and – I think it's just out of fear because they understand this. I mean, in a lot of cases, some cases is pure vanity, but I think in a lot of cases out of fear mm-hmm. for how, like, I know that my mom did it out of fear of how people would treat me. Mm-hmm. I totally. really do. I know for a fact she thought people would treat me badly. She Like, we're not in a position to change society, so I'm going to change you. I'm going to make you fit into it, you know? And it's just like, no, I'm going to change society. <laughs> yes, exactly. That, that's, like, that's what needs to happen. And I, I do I do love like one really pushing brands that you like to do mm-hmm. better. Just yes. be like, hey, I noticed this only goes up to a size 14 that's really fits like a size 10. When are you going to dress more people? Like I, I've – reach this point where I'm like, I'm not going to buy clothes from any brand that isn't trying their hardest to Mm -hmm. do the right thing. And that includes going beyond a size eight and a 10 or whatever nonsense a lot of the current ethical sustainable brands are doing. That infuriates me. I don't want to buy it. And if we're talking about actionable things that we, you know, things that we can do to actually affect change, like we can't change anything without people that are within the standard of beauty or this, you know, standard yeah. of, of size. And that's why people that are in a standard size have to have that mindset for anything to change. Unfortunately, I think that's true. It's totally true. But that is something that you can do. You can encourage those around you who are straight size to, um, to only buy from brands that do extended sizing. And I'm not talking about an extended collection. I'm talking about taking products that they already have and correctly size grading them, not just adding inches because that doesn't work, (laughs) correctly size grading them with fit models to fit a larger um, group of people. Yeah, I agree. And, and, And like, listen, I'll tell you, 
working on the buying side and rolling this out at different brands I've worked, yes, it takes time. Mm-hmm. It takes money. Yeah. It takes hiring the right people to make it happen. But you know what? If if a brand that I liked a lot, and I can't even really think of a brand that I really love at this point because I'm just trying not to buy anything new. Yeah. And it's hard to not become like completely disillusioned. Totally. 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 <laughs> but if a brand that I loved said, listen, hey, guess what we're doing? We're starting it. Here's where we are. Here's the timeline. Here's who we've hired. Here's when it's coming. And like, this is going to become a part of our regular collection by this date. And like regularly updated me on that. I would be so supportive of that brand. Mm -hmm. I would be yelling about it to anyone who would listen. Yeah. So like, just like, it's doable. Yeah. I know that it's doable doable because I've done it, you know? Right, right. And also just like as anybody who buys any kind of fashion, if you see it, if you see something, say something. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Always relevant. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'll leave now. But (laughs) no, um, I think that, you know, you always just, just send a message. The more they see it, the more that it'll have an impact and they'll think, hmm, there might be a market for this. Yes. Right? Always say something. I remember yeah. recently Tradlands. You know that brand, Tradlands? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. They had a sale recently. And I think that they, you know, for what they do, they do it well. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a sale and it was like, buy this top and get these shorts half off. And the top, that they, they, they had the top in um, extended sizing. But they didn't have the shorts in extended Shut sizing. Shut up. Whose idea was this? Right. Well, I think there's no represent- re- representation there probably, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I wrote to them and I said, um, the shorts don't come in my size. And they wrote back immediately. They're like, we're working on it. We're working with fit models. So you can get two shirts and get the sale price. Mm. It's just like, I don't – okay. I guess that like that works, but – I don't want two shirts. <laughs> no, you want the but shirt. just the fact that they addressed it and they came up with a solution that would work in the moment. And I said something. So somebody there knows that this is a problem now and maybe they'll think about it. Absolutely. You know? Be loud about it. That's Be the only way it's going to happen. You know, I like ultimately at the end of the day, even though it might not seem like it, companies do want to stay in business. Yeah. And they want to make money. And so they just need to know, they need us to tell them what's important to us. There, are, I'm, I'm going to be honest. There are some retailers that don't give a fuck about this and never will. Of course. I've worked for some of them. Mm-hmm. But there are other companies out there who are engaged in doing the be- the best thing anyway who, mm-hmm. if if we push for it, will make this happen. You know, they want to make us happy. And I think that's, that's, that's a big step forward in terms of making fashion more accessible. Yeah. Um, I also just think – Calling people out on their bullshit in your personal life is so important. Yeah. Um, I wish I could go to that doctor's appointment with you. We can build a time machine. We'll go and we're going to tell him what's up. Let's do it. Let's do it. (laughs) You know what? Like, honestly, I think if you go to a doctor who fat shames you, fucking give them a bad review on the internet. Yeah. I just like I thought of all the things afterwards that oh. I could have should have said, you know. <laughs> That's I'm, my middle I'm name. It's monster. Fine. Yeah. And but you're so shocked when it happens. Like I heard about it happening so many times. And it has happened. You know, a little like on like low key happened to me in the past, but never like that glaringly. You know, so it's just it's crazy. And, and that kind of, 
fat bias kills people. I do feel like that we can change things. I do think so too. I never thought that before, but now I do all of that, a sudden. That's and great. I don't know where that power is coming from, but I guess it's just, you know, I'm not sure, but <laughs> it, like, but like there's, there's more people like me every day coming into social media at least. And mm-hmm. for all its flaws, oh, there's so many flaws. There's so many flaws uh, in social media yes, yes. and there's so much um, bias and, you know, censorship of fat mm-hmm. bodies. I speak to fat bodies because I can't, that's my life experience, but there's so many other things, you know, there's so m- much more to it, but for all that it, it, for all the reasons that it sucks, it really has done a good job with helping us create representation. So there's that. So we'll take it, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do think like, man, don't get me started on social media. I feel like yeah. actually a lot of the problems that we have right now that we're facing were exacerbated by social media. Like, Absolutely. It's, it's like just fast fashion in general, right? And overconsumption mm-hmm. and like all the dumb vacations that people have to take where they need a whole new wardrobe and like – Right, right. And the treat treat yourself culture. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That all comes from social media and like Facebook. I'm not going to blame MySpace for this because I just don't think MySpace was involved. <laughs> um, tell me if you disagree, but definitely Facebook – Sweet, innocent MySpace. We, MySpace was – that's why MySpace went out of business, I think. They just weren't like evil enough. Yeah. Um, but then Could Instagram. Be. Like think about how living in this world changed – with Instagram. And yeah. I think it's interesting that I've seen in the past couple of years, specifically more than anything, like the pandemic and Black Lives Matter and all of the other social and environmental justice issues that were really coming to a head right now, mm-hmm. that now social media could possibly be a tool to undo some of that damage. Right. And I see like incredible stuff all the time that I think is really opening people's eyes, honestly. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. you know, the problem is that Instagram is like, yeah, but we're really here to sell stuff. So, right. and it's been monetized and monetized yeah. and monetized and is rolling out even new things to monetize people even more, specifically targeting smaller cre- content creators like me. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just like, don't insult our intelligence. We know what we're doing. I don't know if there's a way around it. It's very hard sometimes to make those decisions, at least for me, where it's like, do I show this? It's an ad. Basically, I'm just being used as a model in an ad, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. when really my mission is just like, you can wear certain things and feel good and it can give you, you know, social currency. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, listen, these are all the things that I think about too. Um, I'm excited about what you're doing though. And I think it's really important work and I'm really thank proud you. of you. Oh, thank you. Well, I am very proud of you as well. And I do have to say what you're listening to your podcasts, specifically watching you on Instagram. Cause that's where I mostly watch. Um, I've changed the way I think about things like plastic <laughs> and I'm just like, Wow, you can really talk about plastic, but you know, it you know, it's a seed is planted, right? Yeah. So let's be the seed, I guess. Yeah, right? Exactly. I'm I'm proud of both of us. Yeah. Go us. us. Yeah, we're really <laughs> we're doing <amazing>. it. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you 
all love Jess now, right? Because she is the best, all caps the best, and I feel so honored to have her as a friend. Jess, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so glad that years ago, my employer bought, I think I'm remembering this correctly, ballet flats, or was it rain boots? Jess, you'll know. Maybe it was both. But we bought them from her employer, and then we got to meet. So lucky. You can find Jess on Instagram. Go follow her right now, at Jess in space. That's with one S in the Jess. Another S in space. I totally blew explaining that, but don't worry, because I'll also share it in the show notes. I know this is the part of the episode, because we're coming down to the end here, where I give you a pep talk and get you all riled up to go conquer the world. So... I'll just say this. Jess and I talked at the end of our conversation about planting the seeds of change with our work. But guess what? We're all doing that right now with the stuff we share on social media, the conversations we have with the people in our lives, and even to outside observers who totally don't know us when they see us living our lives in a responsible, compassionate ethical and mindful way. That was a lot of adjectives. (laughs) I truly believe that kindness breeds more kindness, that good deeds create more good deeds. And we all have the power to change the world around us. We're all planting the seeds of change in our daily lives. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. Please consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's the most exciting day of the week when I see a new review for the show. Thank you to everyone who's written one. Keep scattering those seeds of change by telling your friends about the show. And if you'd like to support my work here on the podcast slash on social media, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash close horse podcast, or you can make a one-time contribution via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions. And thank you to all of you who support my work in a multitude of different ways. I'm so grateful for all of you. Don't forget to check out my other podcast, The Department. We're in the midst of breaking down the internet sensation, the term that launched a thousand think pieces and quizzes, Chugi. So go check that out. And thanks as always to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye. (laughs) 